On this show, we believe climate discussions should be happening all the time. Regularly scheduled primetime programming. Say, every week? On Earth? There's a fundamental problem here, and that is that it's not enough to have the facts anymore. That's not enough. I'm Chris Stemp, the jock. I'm Donnie Stemp, the theater nerd. It's the week of September 5th, 2022. The atmospheric carbon level is 416.68 parts per million. That's 24 parts more than this week, 10 years ago. Welcome to the Week on Earth. Okay, so today we're talking about talking. Pretty good subject for a podcast, right, Christopher? Yeah, something I've been doing for literal decades. I would like to say one of my most noteworthy skills. Yeah, we can go back and check the videotape from 1986. This kid doesn't shut up. But today it's not about me. It's about our planet. It's about do we talk about it? It's about do all of you talk as much as I do? And do we talk about climate change? I mean, it's such a hard subject to talk about. I actually mentioned that we were doing a climate change podcast to a number of friends at the beach on this trip I was just at. Yeah, It's like I told somebody that I don't wear deodorant. It's such a buzzkill, it's palpable. Well, that bodes well for this show. (laughs) But I know, it's what we wanna figure out. How do we talk in a compelling way or at least a, a way that starts conversations instead of ending them? The fact is the communication around climate change just doesn't seem to be breaking through. Al Gore was able to do it with an inconvenient truth. Adam McKay, the director, caused a pretty big splash with Don't Look Up. Major disasters like Katrina and Sandy bring climate into the conversation for a few days, but then it fades. So on the show today, we're going to be asking if a major part of solving climate change is just talking about it. Or is that all a bunch of hot air? I got to ask you, Donnie, we're on episode two and we're talking about talking about climate change, not as sexy as toilet paper. Why was this the one you wanted to hang your hat on specifically? Well, I just this was the question that nagged me the most is why is it just not around in the air? These conversations every day. And I know it's it's muddy and difficult. We're not going to solve it right away, but I thought towards the beginning of the show, it was a worthy thing to explore, especially just for the two of us. How are we going to go forward and talk climate every week? Yeah, how are we going to solve it if we can't talk about it in the first place? And so this is really a flagship episode for us that we felt had to be early on, had to be discussed, and really had to be figured out if we're doing a podcast on it. So more on that big idea a little later on. But first, it's time for the news of the week week on Earth. There we go. All right. I'm irritable. It's too hot. I don't know if I can get through the news. Oh, boy. Here we go, Snowflake. How hot is it out there? Chris, it is so hot. There's no punchline. It's so hot. It's about averaging about 109 during the day. It's not cooling overnight. It's just terrible. It's draining. So if you haven't heard, we're in the middle of another unprecedented heat wave out here in the West. There are some wildfires burning, temperature records being broken. Just another reason to not want to be in 
California? I don't know. Isn't that supposed to be the most beautiful place in the country? Well, the point is, yes, these climate effects are going to hit different people differently, but we can't escape it. Well, listen, I I thoroughly want to hear it, but our producer is telling us to get through the news script. So in international news, the deadly monsoon season in Pakistan has led to the country's worst flooding in a decade, where at least 1,100 people have died. The Economist reports that by the end of August, Pakistan had received three times its average rainfall for a whole year. Though Pakistan is responsible for less than 1% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, it is the eighth most vulnerable country to climate change. The cost of the floods will also affect the rest of the world, as flooding in 2021 destroyed more than 12 million acres of crops and contributed to the global surge in food prices. Donnie, uh, your AC just turned um, on and it's really annoying in the podcast. Yeah, I know. I, I What, for an, for an audio show? No, I had to do it just for a minute. Just I can for one see minute. you sweating. Can we keep this news train on its tracks, please? Oh, no, I'm going to talk more about the heat wave. I think it's an important, it's part of the news. This is my news, okay? Luckily, at least my AC is working right now. The California has been warning of rolling blackouts and I would just like to shout out and thank the grid operators here. It hasn't happened yet. They've been asking people to conserve, and apparently it's been working, but it it sounds like the grids might be overloaded, maybe even by tonight, Monday night, or possibly Tuesday, and I won't have this AC for a couple days. I'll have to sit in my electric car, so uh, just give me a minute. Uh, You go back to the news. I'll sit here. Yeah, you sit and sweat. Listen, Hawaii has closed its last coal-fired power plant on September 1st. CBS News reports the AES coal plant closed after 30 years in operation. This should stop 1.5 million tons of annual greenhouse gas emissions. However, renewable sources meant to replace coal are not yet online due to permitting delays, contract, and supply chain issues. So the state will instead burn oil in the meanwhile, only slightly less polluting than coal. Hawaii State Senator Glenn Wakai summed it up like this, quote, If you are a believer that climate change is going to end because we shut down this coal plant, this is a great day for you. But if you pay an electricity bill, this is a disastrous day for you. Isn't that crazy? I, I can hear the trolls right now, and I can just hear people with this Hawaii story saying like, see, you shut down the coal and now you have to use oil. And, mm. you know, but the point is there's going to be these stops and starts and there's going to be a very messy transition. And I just, I can't stand the the sniping at each other. We've been hit with these, the I can't even think straight. The heat wave is is messing with me. And to hear people like um, McCarthy, the, the minority leader McCarthy, was making fun of um, California, his home state, after we passed this historic law that's going to get rid of gas-powered cars in 2035. He said, um, oh, we... We, we want to get rid of gas-powered cars, and now we're telling people not to charge their electric cars during the day uh, to prevent brownouts. And it's like, yes, that is true. We are in the middle of a record-setting heat wave. We're trying to prevent brownouts, and we're trying to alleviate climate change. So we need the electric cars. So it's like we have to do all these things at once. And we can't be 
sniping at each other for for political points on this. I know I'm naive. I don't but- know. You sounded you're sounding a little distraught. I think the heat is going to your brain. It is. Ask my wife. Finally, tonight in our you know highly professional news segment, we're going to bring you something special. It is our first man on the street interview segment. Possibly our last. <laughs> After hearing you go through it. I don't doubt it. That said, in this spirit of just talking about climate change, we sent Donnie out onto the streets of wherever you live in Hippieville to ask random strangers whether they talk about climate change. Roll the embarrassing tape. So I'm out here on the Santa Monica Promenade in LA on a lazy Sunday. This outdoor consumer paradise full of Shoe stores, ice cream, coffee shops, and lots of street performers. Drummers, dancers, singers, clowns, mariachi bands, and me, a guy with a microphone, hoping to talk to random strangers about climate change. Here goes. Hi, I'm recording a podcast on climate change. Could I just ask you a couple questions? Sorry. Sorry. My family's waiting for me. Uh, my English is ready. Uh, a couple questions. Uh, that's a day, buddy. I'm gonna pass. I'm gonna yeah. pass. We're actually trying to get a lunch right now. I apologize, man. We have an appointment. Sorry. Well, for a quiet Sunday afternoon, people sure had a lot of urgent appointments. But eventually, I found some people willing to talk. All right, sure. Go, go, go for it. I'm, I'm curious. Right. I'm curious. Great. I'm intrigued. My name is Alex from uh, San Gabriel. Is climate change something you're worried about? Yes. Is it something you talk to people about? All the time. How do those conversations start? Is it easy? It's not easy. It's half and half, 50 50. Uh, my name's Crystal. I'm from LA. Adam from LA. Is climate change something you guys think about or worry about? Um, yeah, sure. pretty much at one point in a day every day. Is it something you talk about with other people? Yes. Yeah, we yeah. talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's usually we'll see something on like social media or the news, and then kind of it's always something new. So. We'll let's, start. Do, let's do warm to snow and yeah. mountains. And, right. We'll start right. the discussion Take that the way. Skiing, yeah. I'm Jerry from North Hills. Just wondering if it's something you're concerned about. I think it'll kill us if we don't stop it. Is it something you talk about regularly? Yeah. How hard is it to have those conversations? Not hard at all. I, I have a lot of intelligent liberal friends. How do those it's just on everybody's mind. Everybody I know, it's on their mind. Yeah. Has it affected you personally? I don't think it's affected me personally, although I am kind of fond of polar bears. So, okay, I was feeling pretty good about this. Nobody got angry with me, but nobody got too deep either. And just as I was about to finish up for the day, I had a really thoughtful discussion with David from South Africa. We talked right next to this chaotic drumming performance, which somehow felt right, as I asked him if climate change was something he talked about. Um, yeah, I mean, it's always kind of a, a common thing to speak about with friends, but I think it's at the moment it's more one of those where you'll speak about it, you'll be concerned, but no one will actually do anything. Right. Do you think, is it hard to bring up the conversation? No, it's, it's pretty easy. I think everyone's concerned. I mean, at least my, all my contemporaries are. But, you know, the, it's like what goes on after the conversation is the, the issue. Nothing's really happening. Everyone, everyone can say they're concerned, everyone is concerned, everyone's happy to discuss it, but no one's really happy to do anything. I mean, even I know for myself, like, I'm very concerned, but 
it's, it, it doesn't mean I make huge changes to my life. Right. You know, I'll, 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 I'll think about like the single-use plastic and all that kind of stuff, but convenience will win. And at the end of the day, sometimes you do make bad decisions for the climate in your daily life just because it's convenient, you know? Yeah. Do you feel like climate change has affected you personally? I think it has. I think it's affected my mental health, mm. personally. Because you just now live in this world where it's like, you've got this kind of glaring evil that is just coming. You know it's coming, it's gonna happen. But in my day-to-day -day life, not really, no. Yeah. Um, but it's more my mental health, I think, that's been the biggest uh, change. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for thanks talking a lot. to me. Cheers, man. I don't know, Donnie. How did it feel? Did it feel as awkward as I imagined it would feel? Jamming a microphone in people's faces. Yeah. I mean, it did. I did not enjoy it. You know, I'd never just asked people. I'd never asked anybody about climate change. And I think about it a lot. So even just to find a few people who had similar thoughts to me, you know, it was, it was validating. Yeah. And it was useful. You know, as I listened to it, I think back to, I am clearly the more extroverted of the two of us, but mm. I would not want to do that. Yeah. Like I said, when you're standing out there and you're just like who people walking by and you're imagining what they're going to say if you approach them <laughs> and you have like a split second, like, should I ask them? Oh, wait, no. Well, I missed it. You know, what's funny. It reminds me of like when I'm walking into a store and they're selling Girl Scout cookies and in my head I go, <laughs> what can I do? to convince these people through my body language not to talk to me. That's what everybody felt about you in that moment. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what's the idea? Hey, what's the big idea anyway? What's the idea? What's the idea? What's the idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea? Let's get into the big idea. Why is nobody talking about climate change? Now, this is, of course, an oversimplification. Some people do talk about it. A few people talk about it all the time. They can actually be kind of annoying. But depending on your social circles, you may be deep in lots of climate conversations. But research has shown that in general, we just don't talk climate change. Research like the Yale Climate Opinion Map 2021 from the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. They've polled people on their opinions on climate change, and I just find it really fascinating. Throughout the U.S., for instance, the estimated percentage of adults who think global warming is happening is 72%. Not bad. But the percentage of adults who think global warming is mostly caused by human activities is 57%. That's not very good. Now, the percentage of adults who discuss global warming, at least occasionally, 35%. Only 35% of adults in the United States in 2021 occasionally talk about climate change. Wow. I gotta be honest, it doesn't surprise me. Nobody walks into a party and is like, hey, world's on fire. How do you feel about that? And if you really crunch those numbers... Uh, 60, uh, let me, hold on, 65 minus 35, that's 30% uh, of people who are worried about global warming who never discuss global warming. But the point is, people know global warming is happening. Slightly less of them think humans are causing it and a lot less talk about it. I see where you're going with this. Why is that? Social norms seem to dictate against talking about this topic. That's behavioral psychologist Professor Tom Bateman. 
And social norms are an incredibly powerful impact on the way we behave. A lot of people think it's not cool to talk about climate change, that it could even be downright dangerous to friendships to try to talk about climate change. And also, by the way, most people don't know much about it. At one level, it's so technical. Who, who knows the details? Not very many people. Uh, so the cone of silence is a real thing for sure. So right off the bat, he's hitting on our need to fit in, our need to sound intelligent, social norms forever for the existence of humanity have dictated our behavior for the good of the tribe. Yeah, he, he's hitting on the idea that we are social beings and we take these cues from each other. Is it that simple? Is it that we don't want to rock the boat? The, the hardest thing and why people don't want to engage in those conversations is because what we are talking about is a complete existential threat to civilization, it is a really deep conversation to have. And actually, a lot of people don't want to have those conversations. That is UK climate communicator David Saddington. You might have those mild conversations around sort of, you know, what's happening in different parts of the world. But, you know, to talk around climate change it is such a big issue. And actually, so many people feel they can do so little about it. it. You know, it is an issue which is for governments to sort out, whereas sort of all of us normal folk are sort of facing this impending doom but have no agency to do anything about it, which isn't true, by the way, but I think that is a perception. So we're going to get deep into this murky issue of human communication with a few interviews. We've got more with Tom Bateman a little later on. And we'll also be talking to the illustrious presidential advisor, pundit, and TV host, Mark McKinnon, about the intersection of politics and communication. We'll also talk about how to sell the message of climate change. But first, let's continue with David Saddington. What I like about David is climate communicator is actually his job title. That's what he does. He communicates on climate change. He experienced some extreme weather when he was young. He got interested in the issue. He gave a TED Talk about it. And he even worked with then Prime Minister Tony Blair to institute climate change curriculum in UK schools. So, David, how do we break this cone of silence? I still think that so many people in the world view climate change as this sort of this scientific issue. It is something which affects sort of others, but not them. And we really need to be talking about it in a way which sort of picks upon those things. So, I mean, you know, what is your job? Um, you know, if you are a, um, you know, if you work for the energy companies, how is your sort of job going to be affected over the next sort of few years as we transition away from coal to clean, um, you work in, you know, a supermarket supply chain, um, you can't get a lot of the products which you are, you know, used to relying upon in your supply chains because of extreme weather, you know, you're having shortages of lettuce, of cocoa beans, whatever it is, you know, these are issues which affect you. So I think we don't need to actually sort of talk more about climate change as a sort of discrete topic, what we really need is just to bring climate change into those normal conversations. We really need pe more people to understand that climate change is an issue which affects them and then get pretty angry about it um, and actually start doing some, you know, having those changes in their lives, in their communities, but also, you know, being that vocal voice for consistent 
policies and business changes and and all of us are you know such powerful levers in that and and the past few years have actually seen the real power um that you know customers consumers can have um in that voters as well of course what i'm hearing is potentially the way to break this cone of silence is to make climate change personal in a way that it hasn't been in the past. Perhaps it's been elitist, perhaps it's been other, perhaps it's been poor nations, perhaps it's been in the future. And today, none of those things are true. And by identifying the way that it impacts each person differently now makes it a human issue instead of an other issue. I completely agree. We need to make this personal. We need to make it human. It can't be an abstract issue. And that's, we need to put the emotion into this story because it is a story which will shape all of our lives. And we need to, to accept that. But I also think we need to recognize that climate change is here and actually to be sort of mentally prepared for that. Do you think we have made progress on the global discussion around climate change, people's willingness to accept it, or do you think it's still as divisive as it was, say, when you started in the early 2000s? Oh, I think, I mean, yeah, I think we've come so far since, uh, yeah, the early 2000s, uh, undoubtedly. I mean, as undoubtedly, we've got a huge way to go. But yeah, if I look back now at sort of when I first started this, um, there are so many more people who are talking about climate change the awareness is incredibly high particularly in uh the uk in in europe at the moment we'll come we'll come on to the us um mm. but it is so different um we absolutely haven't managed to sort of make the most of turning that awareness into action and that that needs to be the next step i'm sensing that you feel maybe we're at this point or we're getting there, not the entire globe, but many where the communication has landed and now it's really, really past the time for action. Absolutely. Yes. We need to yeah, keep talking about this. We need to make it sort of certainly not a taboo topic of conversation. We need to, uh, yeah, to have these conversations in, in normal life, um, not something which sort of shuts down conversations, but opens them up. Um, and we need sort of to understand sort of how to engage in that. And I honestly do think that sort of the issue is actually to start from understanding what do people care about and actually bringing climate change into those conversations and looking at sort of how climate change will personally affect us all. David talked a lot about personalizing the story of climate change, humanizing it, you know, connecting it to our real everyday lives. And I think that's such a good point. We also wanted to talk to a messaging expert to understand how this message breaks through to the public. So we reached out to none other than Mark McKinnon, the political messaging guru and presidential advisor, host and co-creator of The Circus on Showtime. I love politics. I love this show, The Circus. So I definitely wanted to talk to Mr. McKinnon. Mark, how do we talk about climate change to engage people and win voters? There's a fundamental 
problem here and challenge, and that is that uh, it's not enough to have the facts anymore. That's not enough to overcome challenges, to win elections, to win hearts and minds. Um, if that were the case, Hillary Clinton would be president. There are lots of people who arrive at you know, as CEOs of companies or NGOs or running for office who show up and assume that because they have the facts on their side, that they're smart, that they are going to convince people uh, of the power of their candidacy or their issue. And um, that's not the world we live in anymore. So if facts aren't enough, then what are we missing? What else do we need? You know, when I work for candidates and causes, I talk about the power of storytelling and the importance of storytelling in our modern lives. First of all, conventionally speaking, we think about narrative uh, and the power of narrative in terms of uh, books and films and movies, but it's just as true for campaigns. And there's a reason consumers, viewers, voters want meaning. They don't want just a bunch of public policy papers or ideas thrown at them that are that are not connected to anything, which is, again, Hillary Clinton, you know, public policy, paper after paper, point after point. And so then uh, the candidate will say, well, so how do you do that? What does that mean? And I'll say, well, there's there's a very conventional arc to storytelling. And it, it goes like this. You establish a threat out there or an opportunity. There's something uh, threatening our lives or uh, an opportunity to improve our lives. Otherwise, why are you running or why are you even why are you in the climate fight or whatever it is? If, if the status quo is fine, you don't need to be there. So there's a threat or an opportunity. There's a there's a victim, and you identify who the, who's the victim, who's losing out in this, uh, who who is being threatened or who is being denied the opportunity. Identify the villain. Who is imposing the threat or denying the opportunity? You establish the solutions, and then you reveal the hero. So that is a classic narrative architecture, and you can go through countless campaigns, and if you just kind of break it down like that, uh, successful campaigns almost always have some form of that. Oh, man, I really want to get into politics with Mark McKinnon, but we have such a packed episode, we don't have time for that. Uh, We will do that in another episode. But for now, I will just ask you, Mark, are there any other tips specifically for climate activists to help with our messaging? I, I, I Listen, I, I don't know the solution to the climate challenge. Uh, I just know it's a challenge. I think that too often climate activists just assume that they have the facts. So why aren't we winning this battle? And, and so I listen, obviously, a lot of smart people have been on this front fighting this battle for a long time. And, and it, it's not easy. So I don't think we're going to figure it out in this podcast. But that's the sort of thing that uh, that the climate folks need to be involved in. So, you know, listen, um, a big part of it is to make the threat real and imminent and you know, on the doorstep. I think for too many people, they may sort of theoretically think about it, but they don't think it, you know, they're, they're thinking about immediate threats to their immediate condition. And they think about, you know, gas prices, uh, healthcare concerns, whatever it might be, without kind of putting together how the climate issue affects their daily life and, and, and really is an imminent threat. 
Thank you so much, Mark McKinnon. So he makes almost the exact same point that David made earlier, and that is that we have to personalize climate change when we're talking about it and when we're messaging about it. Let's go now to our final guest of the show, Professor Tom Bateman, who has some behavioral insights into why this is not easy to talk about and some strategies to help us talk about it. He has this one term, proactivity, which I think is such an important idea. Now, it's not in the way that I think of proactivity, but Chris, you know a little more about it because you've taught this. You've taught the seven highly effective habits of people. Good one. Way to butcher that. (laughs) Only one of the most popular books of all time, but really well played. (laughs) The highly seven deadly sins of effective effective communication. Let's ask the expert. Tom, how do you define proactivity? I'll start simply and quickly by saying it is not the cliche that uh, that some people think it is. It's a word that is used in, in a way a lot when somebody's running late and, and say, I wish I'd been more proactive, which means I wish I hadn't procrastinated so much. Uh, that's relevant, but uh, it doesn't nearly capture the depth of what genuine proactivity really is. So I define it as uh, thoughtfully making changes that create better futures, or at least they're intended to create better futures. And what's important about it, I think it's a really special, vital, profound class of behavior because it's different from most of what we do. So much of what we do is not very thoughtful. In fact, we do a lot by routine and by habit and rather unthinkingly. What the Nobel laureate behavioral scientist uh, uh, Kahneman would call uh, system one information processing, which is fast processing without really thinking consciously and deliberately before we mm. decide or before we act. So most, so much behavior isn't particularly thoughtful. So much behavior uh, does not involve making changes, especially taking initiative to make changes. In fact, a lot of what we do is geared toward not having to change and resisting change. Most of what we do is driven by past experiences and by current pressures and current circumstances and other people and is not geared toward our choices about what kind of future we want to strive for. So proactivity is thoughtful and change-oriented and future-focused. And that's more rare than commonplace. First of all, I love everything you said. I think it's so spot on. Uh, Why is proactivity so difficult, given that as humans, we are uh, extremely aware that the future will come and we often ask ourselves, is it the future we want to live in? Uh, You're right. We do think about the future a fair amount, um, but so often that does not translate into helpful action. When mm. push comes to shove, in a way, I could sort of repeat the three things they said. We, could, we might think about the future, and much of what we think is worry or fear or, or shying away from getting involved. And, and we just resort to more intuitive things like not thinking very much, trying to resist change and stick with the status quo routine and habit. And um, uh, past experiences drive a lot of what we do. 
And then at any given moment in the present, we've got other pressures impinging on us and we have to respond to other people's demands and other people's wishes and what our jobs tell us to do and what, uh, what, who knows what else tells us to do. Uh, mm. and, and by the time it's action time, uh, future doesn't offer very much guidance because other things are pushing us in other directions. To put it in kind of psychological bias kinds of terms, we definitely uh, behave according to short-term consequences more than according to longer-term imagined and possible consequences, but they're not a sure thing like the present circumstances we're, we're facing. Mm. Is that a reason or a primary reason you started focusing on climate change? This recognition that we, we have the ultimate future potential experience, right? The potential cataclysmic, catastrophic, life-ending experience, yet what you know and the, the things you have studied for so long are telling us we probably aren't that good at preparing for it. Uh, those things are all true. Plus, even aside from academic experience and, and research and so forth, uh, you might say common sense, but certainly you might say common experience or common observation is how how much we are not prepared for what lies ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, another reason for not being prepared is it's highly uncertain what lies ahead. It's not like we know what lies ahead. It's uh, just full of uncertainties. Um, I've been, I've always been uh, taught in business schools and done research in, in, in the work environment. My field is organizational behavior, and that means basically the social psychology of, of work and, and life at work. Um, and I started studying proactivity. And then at some point in the 2000 aughts, I realized that the ultimate proactive challenge is sustainability and climate change and the need for climate action. That's that requires proactivity. And needless to say, the world, the country, most companies, most individuals are not acting with the future in mind in those very important regards. I want to hone in on that point about we feel like there's not much we can do. I, I do think even if we know we can do something, I can compost, I can buy an electric car. The common refrain is I'm one of seven billion and China and India are the places we need to start, right? It's kind of a, um, a rebuke of our own responsibility. And I'm wondering, well, go ahead, your response to that. I didn't, you heard me make a noise aside yeah. there. Uh, I was reacting. That's such a good point. Uh, first, let me say about the 7 billion people point. There's a word that some people use, but not very many people, agency. And, and of course, I don't mean insurance agencies or driver's licenses or other kinds of agencies, but I mean the power to make a difference, the power to have some influence. And I want to highlight a book by a great climate scientist, Michael Mann, who his book out last year, if you're going to read one book, I suggest Michael Mann's uh, The New Climate War. He's not a psychologist, but to his great credit, he highlights two psychological things that are going to make all the difference in the world. One is urgency, feeling urgent. Urgency plus agency, which is the power to actually make a difference he highlights agency because so many people think we can't do anything about it. And the fact is we can. 
So agency is partly psychological. Can I or can't I? The mindset needs to be, yes, it's a fact that we can make a difference. Now, part of agency begins with responsibility, your word. So much of the conversations about the past and the present have to do with responsibility. I didn't have a big carbon footprint. It's them or they who had big carbon footprints. They're responsible for us being in this jam, so they're responsible for getting us out of this. Um, that There's truth to that, but it is not useful for going forward into the future. It's got to be a collective. We all need to engage. And here's the point about agency for going forward. We can take individual actions, but there is also collective agency, which is working with each other including companies and companies working with other companies. And the third is called proxy agency, which is people acting as agents on our behalf, like politicians. Most people are able to vote, and that's something that can be done urgently and can make a tremendous difference in true agency for helping the planet. So, you know, we've been working on these first episodes for a little while now. Just learning and thinking about this issue of communicating climate change has made it easier for me to talk about climate in public with friends or even with strangers. Yeah, but I'm more impressed that you're having these conversations. You see, because from my end, what I do with this information is I take it in and I have it shape my reality and shape my opinions so that I can behave differently. And as a professional who's been studying behavior change for 10 years, that is really hard to do. So if we're having that impact on those listening, we won. We did it. We're making change. So if you made it through episode two, you're likely somewhat hooked. And we're glad. We put a lot of work into it. Episode three is one of my favorites yet. So to make sure you don't miss it, Be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player so it shows up without having to think about it. The Week on Earth is produced by Elise Louie with music by Amy Eileen Wood. Production assistance this week from MJ Marino. Thanks to CO2.Earth for the atmospheric carbon tracking. And thanks, of course, to all our guests. You can find more of David Saddington at his website, davidsaddington.co.uk. Of course, Mark McKinnon, just go watch The Circus, his show. And then Thomas Bateman, you can find at the University of Virginia. Also, send us your feedback, your story ideas, your climate wins. Email us at weekonearth at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week right here on Earth. <laughs>